This is DJ Evil Dave, and you are listening to the Dark Corner Podcast, only on darkcornerpodcast.com. I give up on trying to find my way, the paths are hard, shade of grey, lost like a needle of mud's fade, the darkness bursts suddenly as bright as day, we will turn the night into day, we will dance, Hello one and all, this is I, DJ Evil Dave, with a somewhat delayed podcast. We were going to bring you a commentary... However, I postponed on the first day, and on the second day, we couldn't find the movie we were actually going to comment upon. We've decided on a different movie, but that will be coming later. So I thought for a catch-up podcast, it would be a good opportunity to do something I haven't done for a little while, and that is an album review. So later on in the episode, I'm going to be talking about... Devils in My Details, the third album by Ogre. I'll be going through that album song by song and uh, reviewing each track. Speaking of having the topic later on, we recently got a review on iTunes, a three-star review, which (laughs) seems fitting. Typically, we either get five stars by friends or... One star, because there's assholes on the internet. But three stars is a reasonable review, and the concern of the reviewer is that it takes too long for us to get to the topic. This is typical of a lot of podcasts. Uh, Just recently got into a Star Trek podcast on Maximum Fun called The Greatest Generation, and they refer to their front material as doing a Marin opening after Mark Marin's opening to his What the Fuck podcast. And we're not the only ones that have some front material before getting into the big, juicy meat of the podcast. The uh, powdery center of the gobstopper. Friends of the show, The Feminine Critique, have a considerably long open as they review movies that they've seen that week before getting into the two movies that they were both assigned to watch and discuss. Night of Living podcast has 15, 20, even more minutes of just banter as they go over the week and do their quite entertaining comedy. The recently closed Black Dog podcast would go over each of the hosts last week And back in the day would do news and shitty superheroes and go over all kinds of different bits and uh, gags and segments. And really our podcast is very much inspired by the Box Room podcast that is uh, now long gone with writer Jen Williams and also writer and frequent uh, runner, marathoner, Doug Strider. Theirs was a general discussion podcast, and they really didn't have any particular topic at all. 
they would just mostly discuss whatever they were currently watching, and that's about it. I think podcasts that get right to the point are fairly uncommon. Now Playing is one, the film review podcast, in which they discuss their experience with a film franchise and even what the theater experience was watching it, the attendance, and so on, before getting into the plot summary and beat-by-beat review of the film, followed by bloopers that were edited out of the main discussion. And that is really one of the few. Even the big podcasts like My Favorite Murder has some front content, both in live shows and in the studio recordings as well as My Brother, My Brother, and Me. So I do find it odd that uh, the fact that we don't get to the topic until later on in the episode, about after halfway through, stood out when so many other podcasts do the same. Could be that this individual didn't listen to that many podcasts, so found ours odd. However, in my experience, we're about the same as any other podcast. So just... For anybody who's dipping in, we won't be getting... Well, I won't because this is a solo podcast this week. I won't be getting to the topic until about halfway through the episode. Before that, you'll have some news, reviews. I'll be laying down a dark track for the Fortnite, And then we'll get into the album review proper. So, with that, some news and reviews. Last night, we saw Eddie Izzard live at the Eccles Theater in Salt Lake City for his Wunderbar tour. It's been one week since... Oh, no. It's been 12 years since we last seen Eddie Izzard. I believe we saw him in Las Vegas. He had a great local bit about naming Salt Lake City. It's like, oh, you've got a big salty lake. Salt Lake City. (laughs) (laughs) And then went on about the strange names of towns in England, which was a good bit of fun. A lot of personal material in this tour, going over his family, his politics, his vision of the universe, the reason why he's running so often, doing so many marathons, and a very positive reaction to... The Brexit, and as he called it, the Trump shit world we live in today of this sudden rise of 1930s style politics, this return to fascism, and that it was to do good. Not only to do good, but to double your efforts in doing good, to outweigh the bad. And those were really the bookends of his show. Between is your standard Eddie Izzard. From the Big Bang to now kind of narrative of things that he's found odd about history, religion, physics, a lot of animals, lots of tigers and giraffes and bats and so on. Great bits of the reign of the dinosaurs, of how they've had millions of years on this earth and really did nothing with it because, well, they're big stupid idiots just going around eating and screwing one another. I don't know if you've ever seen Eddie Izzard live, but he is 
phenomenal stand-up comedy and a lot of comedy in various forms, whether sketch or stand-up, is always better live, right there in the room experiencing it. Because it's very personal, especially stand-up, where they're speaking, sometimes it seems, directly to you. The Eccles Theater is gorgeous. Very little leg room, as you'd expect, because... A lot of theaters, like airplanes, try to cram in as many seats as possible. And they have cup holders too, which makes it a bit odd when you stand up to let somebody through and you have maybe a glass sitting in the cup holder in front of you. Not that I knew if there any glasses being there, but a lot of people had beer. It's a super tall building. I think there were three different balconies, you know, three levels of them, tiered down towards the stage at a slant, as you'd expect. And I spotted this exit sign, this green exit sign, way at the top where the catwalks would be. And I pointed that out to Brandy, and she thought it was just the top balcony one. I was like, no, above that one. (laughs) It's like, is that for villains and assassins for Ethan Hunt to fight? You know, it's just kind of a James Bondy thing to have this exit go to this catwalk. It's all the different spy films where you see them fighting way above a theater. The crowd, a lot of them did show up late because this is Utah and instead of Mountain Standard Time, it's Mormon Standard Time. People show up 5 to 15 minutes late for a show, which kind of speaks to the whole white privilege, white entitlement position of people in this state, thinking that they're going to hold the show until you arrive and you're in your seat. As a DJ and lighting tech at a comedy venue, I can account for how many people show up at the time the show's supposed to start. It's like they act that the show start time is the doors open time, and it's quite frustrating. There's been occasions where I've had to uh, flicker the lights on and off and actually make an announcement that the show's about to begin just to get people to sit in their seats. So there's a little bit of that. A wide range of people, lots of alternative-looking folks with uh, partly shaved heads and uh, colored hair and rocking kind of the punk look. You got the hipsters with the uh, long beards and a lot of older folks in suits and, you know, suit ties and that sort of thing. Brandy and I were kind of matchy-matchy. I was wearing a purple jewel-toned dress shirt with a silver silk tie and she had this flowery top on with some purple accents in the uh, in the actual blossoms and the Eccles Theater is in a, kind of a theater district part of Salt Lake City which is pretty nifty there's some murals painted on nearby walls there's this hip little uh, coffee shop bistro sort of thing that there is a constant line near we had free parking which was a surprise we didn't expect that I think because so many people had attended this show they just wanted to swiftly get everybody in and out which also meant going through some back channel where a lot of the deliveries would have been sent so that was kind of nice if you're an 80s action film fan it's kind of robocopish to be in these back alleys where you don't normally see a lot of the industrial aspects of downtown Salt Lake you know all the shipping doors and ventilation shafts and all that stuff We went to City Creek briefly. That's a 
kind of half indoor, half outdoor mall. They have a sky bridge going over the main street of Salt Lake, and it's near the temple, so we got to see a few tourists filing in and out of the Mormon temple. We ate at a place called Great Steak and Potato Company. They did original Philly cheesesteaks, and I do mean original. They're, they have the proper bread, and that was quite good. And they had some of the best fries I've ever tasted, too. I don't know what they uh, fried them in, whatever oil, but they were quite tasty for just being French fries. So I'd definitely eat there again. There's a cool little shop that I think was called Papyrus that sold various paper products. A lot of it seemed handcrafted greeting cards and that sort of thing, along with journals, which is always a lure for Brandy. She's always had a fascination with journals and office supplies, writing supplies. And she's always wanted a roll-top desk, and we finally have one. So, yeah, that is definitely her bag. We also went to Sephora, found her some really fair foundation that she's fallen in love with she put a little bit of the tester on her hand and rubbed it in and says oh wow <laughs> you know got rid of some of the redness and uh yeah really matched her fair skin you know being this scottish irish celt that she is rode the front runner down walking from the house to the train station and it was a bit windy a bit cloudy a little bit of spittle of rain noticed that the national was coming to our little outdoor venue in downtown Ogden. Not that I'm a big national fan, but I did still find it surprising because not that many years ago, the national was all over the place as a band. Also, uh, at Eccles, we noticed that Deep Purple was coming to the Eccles Theater, so that was a bit of a surprise. As well as Double Dare Live. Huh, very odd. Oh, and the Book of Mormon musical, too. So that was our adventures yesterday. We are gone well especially brandy because she worked that day too we were gone most of the day so poor brandy has to work today as well this is my normal friday off i declined working overtime to rest up after a late night at the theater watching quite a long uh, stand-up set it started at eight and we we're getting out around 11 so there you go we're watching the new jessica jones Brandy's struggling with it somewhat because she does not like villains that are always these few steps ahead. It kind of made sense with the Purple Man because he had mind control powers, so anytime he'd managed to manipulate you, that would turn the tables. But for this particular villain, always having things meticulously planned, it's a bit cliched, and being a listener now to My Favorite Murder... A lot of serial killers don't quite work that way. It's more of the failures of the investigators than the cunning of the serial killer as to why they don't get caught. I think one of the few exceptions is the Golden State Killer because he was in law enforcement and knew what they were looking for and therefore could avoid getting caught. But for an ordinary serial killer, they're not better than us. They're worse than us. Their lack of a conscience doesn't make them superior. Indeed, since there's these psychological obsessions of theirs as to their mode and execution of their crimes, these patterns that often develop, it's as if they want to get caught. 
but at the same time don't. So there's usually some mistake that will lead them to be getting caught. There are a few exceptions. Serial killers that target high-risk people of color where there's not as much of a budget or public outcry for the crimes to end. And that is a failure of us as a society to not value all persons equally. If a little white girl gets kidnapped, everybody goes insane. But if you're someone like a member of the LGBTQ plus community, and you, you might be a sex worker or something, there's less of a feeling of vigilance over that or a cry for justice. So I'm kind of struggling with this season as well. I'll see where it goes. But uh, I tend to like the Jessica Jones seasons more so than other Netflix series. Not that I've really hated any of them other than the first Iron Fist uh, debacle. I'm not sure what they were trying to do with that. But Jessica Jones is one of my preferred. I did like season three of Daredevil, but how could you not? That was expertly done. Nice way to tie various threads together. Watching... Swamp Thing as well, and that's already been cancelled. So, yeah, I do like how it approaches the horror aspects of the original comic book. It doesn't shy away from rather Carpenter-esque and Cronenberg-esque like body horror as these bodies get taken over by plant life and surrounding animal life too as there's a... uh, corpse that's being driven around by a bunch of bugs. So it's a series that seemed to show promise. A lot of southern gothic stuff, you know, big rich family with uh, dark secrets. Small town girl made good going back to town that turned their back on her over her indiscretions and youth. So I would recommend it, but uh, I would (laughs) advise you not to get too attached as it's already going to be a one-and-done fair, and probably something you might hear reviewed eventually on the Twice as Bright Half as Long podcast, which has just finished off their review of Firefly. Oh, we saw Men in Black International. It's very much in the spirit of the original Men in Blacks, or Men's in Black, which, in my opinion, were... Movies with diminishing returns, wherein the third one I thought was awful. The first, okay. The second, had some problems. Men in Black International is about in that second tier, like Men in Black 2. It's very much a Steven Spielberg and Barry Sonnenfeld production. A lot of music. The score is pretty much always present. I don't recall not noticing there being some score, except in the case where there'd be a needle drop for, like, a nightclub scene. The music really calls attention to itself. It's very much music written for comedy film with aliens in it. Chris Hemsworth, he's charming, engaging, funny. His character has an arc to him, this once great, agent that everybody says something eventually happened to him and he's not quite the same and all that gets paid off in the end and you find out why. Tessa Thompson, an American, witnessed the existence of the men in black at an early age and strove through her 
life to her adult years in order to track down the men in black and join them. So she's the new recruit, and together they go on this mission against some really cool aliens played by two twin brothers, clearly dancers in that really cool animation and kind of Trump style, hip hop style, you know, dance, you know, you can really do that with your body kind of motions. But of course, they're a red herring and you find out that the true alien is working with the mole from inside the men in black. It's all pretty rote. The screenplay is really not that good. It's not that funny. It's not that surprising, though the cast is really good. I think the only thing that really elevates Men in Black International is the inclusion of Kamel Nanciani as this little alien creature called Pawnee, who swears alliance to Tessa Thompson's character. I get a feeling that a lot of Pawnee's lines were improvised, as uh, Kamel is a stand-up comedian and probably was there for Punch-Up as well. It's really the best moments are Pawnee moments and Pawnee's lines and interactions have a comedic glow that is lacking in most of the rest of the script. It feels like a very 90s production. It's kind of dusty and while it would fit in well next to the rest of the Men in Black uh, trilogy, I think they could have done something to update it and uh, get a better shine on it. And I think to do that, they would have needed different producers to get it in the hands of somebody else with the with the cash and the final say. It really doesn't have a whole lot of newness to offer. It's watchable, somewhat engaging. Every once in a while, you'll have a decent laugh. But overall, if you're not a big uh, fan of the cast, I'd say skip it. If you are a fan of the cast, then yeah, you get your money's worth, I think, for a movie ticket. Uh, you might notice a lot of noise going on in the background. Uh, we have some crows in our backyard that are going nuts, having a dispute over territory or something. But yeah, they're just cawing away. And meanwhile, there's some neighbors that are, from what it seems like, re-roofing their house. So you'll maybe hear them hammering away. It's early on a Friday, too early to be hammering roofs. I think there's a noise ordinance until 10 o'clock and it's right now like 9 30 in the morning it's friday so i don't hear a lot of uh, yard work being done because that's something else being late june normally you'd probably be hearing some lawn mowers going at it but if you do happen to hear any uh, background noise seep through my edit then that's what's going on i'm also surprised i don't have a cat talking to me because he gets a little rattled when I podcast alone because to him it seems I'm speaking to no one. That is not true. I'm speaking to you. I think that takes care of news, reviews, etc. for now. So uh, let's say we get into the dark track of the week. Is that a yes? Excellent. Dark track of the week comes from the artist that is our topic of this podcast, and that is Ogre. 
I may have played this track in a previous incarnation, but we're rolling around now as the Dark Corner, and a lot of the previous Dark tracks we played way back when are fair game, in my opinion. It is an extended version of a song off the Undeveloped album by Ogre, and it is called Tragic. It's within the trees Watching, watching over seas Waves of rain are oceans Yeah. 
some features of this song may speak to you. One of which I think is how it references music played for sporting events, for competitions. And I think there is a martial quality to it. The chanting and the particular drum beats that there's something primal and uh, mob mentality about people gathering together in a very tribalistic way of being us versus them and how you can like George Carlin did with American football compare sporting events to war with George Carlin there was a language to American football that was analogous to that of war and even the framework the rules of American football are warlike in that there's the enemy territory and there's your territory and there's your end zone and a touchdown that throwing a long pass is a bomb that you penetrate the enemy space through air or land in order to gain you know yards or inches and it's all the reference to war of course Carlin then uh for comedic effect compared that to American baseball where things aren't measured quite the same you know there's the distance to a wall from one stadium to another could vary you know, the big green monster or you know just the baseball diamond could go out forever that you play on a field you run home so I think tragic very much goes on the American football side of uh competition. At least that's the impression I get anyway, especially with the chanting. And just talk about game. You know, how do you beat the game? Undeveloped was uh, Ogre's return to more uh, pop-friendly music that uh, Ogre was known for, and I think we can get to that in the main topic, in the point, right after this. I say, Mr. Wilson, how the devil are you, sir? Well, Mr. Primus, I'm rather corking. I don't know about you. I'm spiffing, sir, spiffing. Well, seeing as we finished that lovely show, Shake and Blake, I was wondering possibly we should maybe find a new show to podcast about on that wonderful website, Earth2.net. Oh, what's a spiffing idea? And we could share it on geekplanetonline.com. Why, then, we could do that very thing. But what show should we talk about? Good point, old boy. Any suggestions? Well, how about The Prisoner? Ooh. Ah, but that only has one series, old chap. Better think of another. You know what? You're absolutely right. Okay, how about Life on Mars? Life on Mars? Well, that was more than one series, old boy, but... I think it's only ran to the two. Oh, dash it all. This is damnably difficult. How about that charming American show, Firefly? I, I forget how long that lasted for. Oh, I'm afraid that was only the one series. I believe that's taken anyway. Yes, yes. Mm. Well, there is that other lovely American show, The Middleman. Ooh! I've never heard of it. Really? Oh, damn. Damn, it's only one series. Ah, oh, for shame, for shame. 
You know what we could do? What's that, old fruit? We could do all of them! By Jove! What a spiffing idea! Twice as bright, half as long. Coming soon to GeekPlanetOnline.com and Earth2.net! Okay, we are reviewing the album Devils in My Details by Ogre. It is the third release of Ogre's side project, Away from Skinny Puppy. The band formed around the year 2000. Originally, it was supposed to also have Alan Jorgensen of Ministry fame involved as well, but that did not come to be and the one song they were working on actually ended up being i believe on the filth pig album by ministry originally the band was going to be called welt which was an acronym of when everyone learns truth however it took some time for the band to form so a californian punk band had picked up the name before Ogre could release an album. So instead, their very first album is called Welt, which was released on March 20th, 2001, followed by Sunny Psyop on July 1st of 2003. Both these albums, uh, Nivik Ogre, lead singer of Skinny Puppy, works with guitarist Mark Walk to include a bit of hip-hop and synth-pop influences to electro-industrial music and this was very much a return to the the bubblegum pop that uh, ogre enjoyed as a child and as he himself quoted uh, the archies were a big influence the archies seemed to have come around in a weird way in the gritty grim dark melodramatic way they've approached uh, riverdale on i believe the cw you may recognize the song Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Ba da da ba ba. You know that one. Still, these two early Ogre albums had Ogre's biting sarcasm and uh, predilection to puns and wordplay, such as in song titles, as illustrated by some of the odd ways in which Lucid, being L U S I D, for instance. As you might expect, a lot of the lyrical content is about the same as you'd get with Skinny Puppy, and that is desire for environmental protection, animal rights, a distrust of pharmaceutical companies, a distrust of the corporatization of America and the world. And one of his hits from Welt, Cracker, references unoriginality in art and according to the video has a playful dig at Trent Reznor which a lot of people have misinterpreted but also a kind of jab at Eminem. Oh and now we have outside a neighbor riding around on their ATV through the neighborhood as if we're living in a trailer park which is always lovely. <laughs> Though according to Brandy Posey living in a trailer park is actually kind of cool. Anyhow back to the review. So yeah, the first two albums have this tongue-in-cheek kind of vibe. The uh, music's a bit more 
danceable, more accessible than what you get with Skinny Puppy, which is a band and musical style meant to provoke, so much so that their music was used in Guantanamo Bay for torture. And you may recall how the band sued the Pentagon for $666,000 for royalties, but never received it. So now we get to the album for review, and that is Devils in My Details, released on November 5th, 2008. Isn't that Guy Fox Day? That's interesting. Ogre was planning to release something very similar to the two previous albums, but encountered some personal problems in his life that led to a darker, more sinister-sounding album. It's a concept album, and as a DJ, I've been getting more into making continuous playlists, you know, where you transition from one song to the other. I had a quite interesting one that I did recently for a possible show at the Comedy Loft, wherein I took Leibach's cover of One Vision by Queen, sung in German, so Gebert Einer Nation. And the tail end of that song leads into the opening bit of Erasure's cover of Abba's Take a Chance without fiddling with the beats per minute or the tone or note key of the song. I layered the two together and it sounds pretty damn cool. So Devil's in My Details from opening to close plays like one continuous track. Each song bleeds into another uh, instrumentally and also literarily, if you, I can use that as a word, by spoken word poetry read by Bill Mosley, who if you are a fan of horror film, his name will be very familiar to you as he's a big name in the horror community, especially for playing Chop Top in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Ogre and Mosley formed a friendly relationship during the filming of Repo, the genetic opera in which they were playing brothers. They seemed to get along quite famously. I'm not too surprised as Ogre is a confessed fan of horror movies and sci-fi movies. You can hear it in the music of Skinny Puppy, especially early on when they used a lot of samples from various horror films and uh, suspense films such as Hitchcock. Skinny Puppy's uh, single for Warlock had a bit about uh, censorship of horror films and how that was uh, an affront to art. And if you look at the video nasties of England and how films were outright confiscated from video stores and video store owners, retailers, were prosecuted for distributing violent material. You had a bit of a point. The Nasty Pasty podcast discusses the video nasties in detail covering uh, the movies of the era that somehow escaped prosecution or uh, confiscation just kind of illustrated how haphazard law enforcement's approach to the whole thing was. 
So yeah, Ogre is definitely a fan of uh, horror films and formed a friendship with Mosley, who then read these uh, poems to tie this concept album together. And with that, I think we can get into the album proper with the first song, simply called Shh, S-H-H, Shh. When I first purchased this album for myself and gave it the first listen, I was taken aback by how aggressive it opens. It's just pounding drums, almost like uh, Japanese taiko drums, just thumping thunderously. And then Ogre, as if distorted by a megaphone, starts shouting the vocals, which, if you interpret it in such a way, seems self-critical. Every time I open my mouth, my voice sounds like shit. It's an odd way to open an album and may speak to some self-doubt, some self-criticism that artists are known for. I think it's a pretty well-known trope of the talentless hack that has complete confidence and the creative genius who is always crippled by self-doubt. And this opener leans on the second half of that. There may be some references to the touring musician as well with the final bit, speaking of a van, though the white van will make an appearance later on as well and in itself is a spooky trope referencing child abduction and abuse and that sort of thing, though also possibly a surveillance. I mean, the white van, well, a black van is probably more like a black helicopter thing of a surveillance society while white van has something of the serial murderer, the child abductor kind of vibe to it. Yes, shh is uh, another strange joke with a word meant to quiet someone to shut them up, something you might hear in a public library, as a title for a song that is so loud and aggressive and just is like a knock on the door. Well, actually banging on the door, uh, trying to get in. I don't think there's that many albums that open with such abrupt <laughs> aggression as uh, this one. The second song, Eye Candy, opens with another poem, free verse, referencing pornography and how its depiction of the sexual act is often quite aggressive and does not illustrate feelings of love. It's the clinical sexual act and not one of intimacy and uh, a building or consecration of a relationship. However, when you get into the, the song itself, you get into the muddy waters of Ogre's lyrics. Ogre, and this goes to Skinny Puppy as well, has a sort of stream-of-consciousness approach to writing lyrics. His illusions can be dense and obscure and personal, and often, if unless you're inside his head, you're not exactly sure what the songs may mean. There is a comparison, a kind of clinical approach to this song about uh, reaching into your intestines and injecting 
And in that regard, there seems to be a penetrative uh, sexual act there, injecting a needle into someone and then pushing down the plunger and pushing chemicals into another body. And the reference to the insertion of a penis and ejaculation is uh, comparable. However, for the life of me, I cannot find how the uh, reference to pornography bridges over to uh, the chemical medical side of it, though I do know that many members of Skinny Puppy struggled with drug use. Multi-instrumentalist Dwayne Gattel died of a heroin overdose in his parents' home. Meanwhile, Ogre had left the band on sabbatical to deal with a cocaine addiction and the band has been also known to partake of marijuana which doesn't seem too big of a deal as well as psychotropic drugs such as mushrooms so there could be a reference here to drug use though knowing ogre's view of pharmaceuticals and the opioid crisis and all that sort of thing I think there's more of an exploitative kind of thing going on here. With a little Google foo, I have not found if Ogre is an anti-vaxxer. It does not seem to be the case, though I know he's critical of the medical community, at least in regards to research and development of drugs, not necessarily the role of doctors other than perhaps in the corruption behind getting people addicted to opioids and that sort of thing. unnecessary procedures, inflated costs, things that are more administrative in the medical community than are life-saving. So maybe in that regard, it's a reference to exploitation, the way that uh, we view pornography as an exploitation of women, a way to appeal to the male gaze and the male fantasy and a rather unnatural or unloving look at the sexual act. Well, that is not the case with all pornography. There are women producers, women directors in the adult industry, and their approach to pornography may be a bit more enlightened, more empowered. But if you look at the exploitation of, uh, of people in the medical community, maybe that's where this line connects one to the other. However, musically, uh, this is a very sinister song with kind of a lurch and crunch horror type aspect to it. Very stalker, and that might be a reference to to being penetrated as if some maniac was uh, stalking slowly up upon you to stab you. It's a lumbering kind of beat. And speaking of stabs, there are some electronic stabs on a keyboard to really drive home. It's a rather mechanical nightmare of a song. The third song, Three, which uh, seems like it was a placeholder until another uh, song title could be discovered and never was. Uh, this song might shine light into the previous one, as it is a song under three minutes, which is kind of rare these days, but is an account of getting high. In fact, the very last bits of the song are just ogre saying the word over and over again. High, 
high, high. There's references to whiteouts and vapor trails, perhaps referencing smoking some kind of material with the reference to whiteout, possibly cocaine, maybe in crack form, if it is being smoked instead of snorted. There's a higher pace, a speedier tempo, and a sense of urgency, which also suggests possibly cocaine. So with the previous song about being in, about injections, there could be a reference to heroin there. So looking at it lyrically and combining that with the sense of urgency in the song, it seems pretty straightforward that three is illustrating the sensations of being on some kind of stimulant, some drug of that nature. The fourth track really changes things up quite literally by changing the time signature. It's, by my estimation, a waltz, either a 3-3 time or a 3-6 time. And the opening poetry talks about how America is killing the narrator with bacon. And if you think of a few years back how there were bacon memes all over the place and bacon, bacon this, bacon, bacon that, there was such a proliferation of bacon positive messaging that it seemed rather suspect, actually. <laughs> it's like, what was the source of all this bacon love? Yeah, bacon can be tasty, but is it all that? Especially if you consider its effect on heart health. All that bacon grease and bacon fat can't be all that good for you over a period of time. Ogre is a self-confessed vegetarian. He does not care to eat meat. He is an animal rights activist as well. So the way we harvest animals for food, he finds repellent, such as with pork and poultry and beef, that there are cruel means of producing this material for food. At least with free-range animals, they can live a decent life before they're harvested for food, but for factory-farmed animals, their life is not good at all. Living in cramped cages, being force-fed, being modified by chemicals to produce more fat or what have you. I am reminded of Pat Oswalt's bit on the Mega Leg, I believe a product of Kentucky Fried Chicken, in which there is this massive drumstick that even the people behind it said should not be natural, that they found a way to make a drumstick so huge, which can't be natural. And as it's not natural, you can see how Ogre would be against that. And so Feeling Chicken is somewhat a treatise on factory farming. The opening verse, one eggs with two eggs, three makes it four legs, why is it opposite? While somewhat dense, does also illustrate how we view four-legged animals as different than ourselves. That we don't view them as being equally having a right to life. A lot of those that become vegetarian or vegan, it's through moral issues 
and veganism and vegetarianism has also been equated to people of a higher intelligence, that they have this self-reflection to look at the consummation of animal products as being morally wrong. And to ignore that, why would you treat people different? You know, if you're going to consume animal products, you know, does that moral failing also tie into other moral failings, such as towards the end of the song talking about uh, war dicks inching forward, that if we don't value life on four legs, how can we value life on two? And all this is uh, pondered over the rather punchy waltz-style beat that, because it has that kind of waltz-style, has a bit of a country-western sort of vibe to it. Again, maybe referencing the farm or ranch life attitude. The fifth track has kind of a languid beat to it with more softened vocals by Ogre. And the lyrics are quite introspective. It's a reference to Arctic bones, which might be a self-reference as Ogre is Canadian. Uh, Skinny Puppy is a Canadian band and really at the spearhead of the electro-industrial movement along with fellow Canadian acts like Frontline Assembly, with Bill Lieb being a member of both, I believe. Yes, he was a keyboardist with Skinny Puppy for a short time. I get the impression from Pepper that it is a song possibly about depression. There's a reference that you'd wish it was either yesterday or tomorrow, but not today. That today is a bad day. Today things aren't going well. That your home, which is usually for relaxation or a sense of safety and security, becomes a bit of a prison. That all the things that are familiar to you day and day take on some possibly evil aspect. You start to infer any kind of comment has some vicious meaning behind it. There's a little bit of paranoia, some self-doubt, and just some bad thoughts. And so having a more languid, kind of lazy beat and more somber, less confrontational vocal style, I mean, even the very end is whispered to the point of possibly not being audible, depending on how you're listening to it. But yeah, the very last lines, I'm a dead fly in your, in your face. Take me back to some place where I wish I was yesterday. I wish I was tomorrow. I'll give up. Tomorrow I'll give up, but today. There's another line I really like, and that is altogether so a part of this ever-puzzled accident that everything seems to be the result of chaos. There's no rhyme or reason to the universe. There's no big plan. There's no bearded guy upstairs organizing everything. It's all just randomly played out since the big bang. And how is it that we can cope in such a chaotic atmosphere? It can be burdensome at times to deal with the chaos of the world when we simply don't feel up to it. But I guess that's why you approach it day by day. That adage that uh, it gets better. And that's a Taoist thing. 
is that as good as things are, be prepared for them to become worse. And as bad as things are, they can only be bad for so long before they improve. So there has to be a tenacity, a patience, a, um, a stick-to-itiveness that can be a difficult struggle to live day by day, not knowing what tomorrow may bring. But who knows? You know, tomorrow is a, another day, if you wish to be rather rote about it. But there's a reason that is a phrase, is that you never know what tomorrow may bring. So just live through today. The next track, The Angel, is extraordinarily short. It's more of an interstitial than anything, though it's quite impactful. Once again, we get that percussive quality that has been throughout most of the album so far. As the centerpiece of the album most references the title of Devils in My Details, the angel makes references to angels and devils, and uh, I guess the angels and devils of our human condition are the good and the bad of us. And it also makes a reference of feeling like a rabid dog with tumored sight. This is an attitude that is the foundation of the music of Skinny Puppy. The name itself was devised as the point of view of Skinny Puppy as a band. Their mission statement, I suppose, to look at the world as a malnourished animal, as an abused pet. One of their very first tracks from the experimental days before releasing their first cassette, which now, if you happen to have one, is uh, insane. I think only 50 were produced and only 30 actually got into the hands of people. But the song Canine is uh, evocative of this attitude. And I think this song, The Angel, is a return to that, of being this embattled, feral, injured animal looking at the world and seeing it for what it is. And I think there's a bit of a Canadian looking at the United States. There's a reference to a border and also a reference to how war sinks the mind. That there's this warlike attitude of the United States that um, gets referenced by a lot of stand-up comedians as well as this idea that going to war is an ego boost for your average American. That because we pour so much of our money into the military-industrial complex, that's how we flex our muscle and, from time to time, go to war to illustrate our power and therefore lift spirits. Even now, the current administration is, it seems, constructing a cause to go to war with Iran, when most people see this as a fabrication. There was a similar thing about a ship getting attacked to lead us into Vietnam. It's the same play from the same playbook, and the film Wag the Dog addresses that as well, as to fabricate a war in order to continue the current administration's claim to power, that you don't change horses midstream, and so you'd have cause to elect the same person twice because you're in the middle of a conflict. 
it's that flex of national power, of nationalism, that, in quotes, sinks the mind. Psycho Real seems to be a song about relationships, and particularly uh, possibly poisonous or overly clingy relationships, and such that uh, one of the common lines of the phrase is, you can be my god. Psycho-reality, as a term, refers to how we construct our own universes, that what the self perceives is real, that there's this supposed objective reality that lives outside of us, that because we are subjects and interpret things, we may never completely understand. We interpret the events around us, and there's been experiments about this, about how we fabricate and alter our own memories, so even the world that we suppose we live in is false. One such instance of this uh, phenomenon is with Brian Williams, the uh, television journalist, with his scandal regarding his report of being in a helicopter that was shot down in uh, the Middle East. What he witnessed was another helicopter being in their uh, convoy being shot down, but through telling and retelling of the story, the story gradually changed to the point where his very own helicopter was the one that was shot down. So it was something that never happened to him, but there is a distinct possibility that he believed that it did through reframing of the memory. And it's odd how we do this. We excise parts of our memory that do not appeal to us and include things that may not have happened to perhaps make us more prominent in our own story. I've been amongst people telling stories that have claimed to do a thing that I know that somebody else did, but then wonder if they had somehow conflated the story or uh, confused themselves in the retelling. I could very much be responsible for this as well, perhaps subconsciously refusing to take the blame for something that I did and putting that onto someone else, or putting myself in more prominence and giving myself more agency over something that happened that perhaps I was only a minor bit. So if you're in this state of mind that is rather malleable, having another person in your life where you can elevate them into a position that perhaps they're either undeserving or do not want as to make a deity out of your romantic partner or business partner or something. That can be a dangerous position to put in and uh, really removes agency from yourself. The mind is a strange thing, very complex and often quite fragile. So while the desire to deify the people around you, it's a kind of a dangerous path and fraught with pitfalls of their own. White Van is an odd one and seems to be a song in two parts. The first being this altered spoken word account of what seems like an excavation of sorts but in reference to a white van, possibly criminal scene investigators digging up graves, possibly even their own. It's, it's an odd bit of business, uh, 
very poetic language, but dense and hard to interpret exactly. But there's something business-like and day-to-day -day about it. It's just this world of people with shovels digging and digging and digging. Possibly to find bodies or to lay to rest bodies. While the second half, which is introduced by the words white world being spoken again and again, and also a reference to colorblind. So I don't know if there's a reference to racism somewhere in here. I'm not sure what's going on there. But you get in the indication that in the second half when Ogre is uh, singing, that he is somewhat an observer and a participant. Is he the serial murderer watching from afar as uh, the crime scene investigators pour over his burial ground, sitting by the open door looking up to take it out, settle in to catch a show? Are we entering the thought process of the serial murderer? Resituation, dead indication, feels like a clock I ate ticking in this toxic state. Ready for an occupant, suck it up to sniff the paint, sniffing up the weakest link rising from the righteous stink. Ticking in this toxic state is an interesting turn of phrase as is uh, it feels like a clock I ate. Of this desire, this anticipation, this this compulsion, which if you look at the Fritz Long film M with Peter Lorre, at the very end he talks about the compulsion to be a child murderer, that it's something that is beyond the killer's control, that he just can't help it, he's compelled to hunt down and murder children. And is that this compulsion? And if you look at other aspects of this album being about drug addiction. Is this the feeling of a drug addict? Of the need to get a fix to, you know, at that thing they call a jonesing. This itch that needs scratching. And if you look at that in terms of criminal psychology, it could be very much the same thing of the murderer's desire to murder. Of course, this is all interpretation. It's a uh, very dense lyrically, though other lines such as in a copter raise the rope firmly placed around my throat, which reminds me of a scene from Scarface, which I saw when I was way too young, but in that own regard would be perhaps a reference to drug trafficking. So there's a lot going on here, but there's always this sense of, in one half, just the day-to-day -day grind, and on the other, this sense of being outside the circle, of being an outcast and watching the show from the bleachers rather than being on the field. So I find the tune itself to be quite catchy and punchy, and only when you start paying close attention to the lyrical content do these uh, images kind of speak to you in that stream of consciousness kind of way that Ogre is known for. Not necessarily easy to interpret, and kind of a difficult album to review, but I'm taking a stab at it anyway. While I enjoy every song off this album, it really is a great album from start to finish. Time Bomb 
is my favorite. Uh, it's uh, incredible. It's um, got a great beat to it. I love Ogre's vocal style. I like the construction of the stanzas and chorus. I like the piano style keyboard approach. Once again, to give it this kind of punchy, upbeat atmosphere, which contrasts nicely with the lyrical content. And once again, we're into drug addiction. We get some spoken word stuff from Bill Mosley before getting a sample from what seems a public service announcement sort of thing, or one of those uh, anti-drug videos they may have played in school. An account comparing the dangers of drugs to the dangers of messing around with a poisonous reptile. So it's pretty clear what the song is about. And then Ogre goes into the lyrical content, and it's uh, quite evocative of having the drugs speak to him, like a familiar friend talking about you know the good times and wanting to be let out. The person you are on drugs wanting to be let out to play for a while. I've dealt with billions of your resilience, come on and let me out. That there's not anything special about Ogre in that regard that so many others have had struggles with drugs. So what makes Ogre so special that he can resist it? This is where the title of the song comes in, a time bomb. I feel a time bomb taking closer to my house. Is that urge, the, uh, the addictive triggers. My favorite fear is there in the air. I feel a time bomb taking closer to my house. But it's not all the good times that there are prices to pay when it comes to drug use and drug addiction, which gets addressed as well, such as I spent your millions taking the chill on, come on let me shout. Also, some say I'm a virus, even the liars waiting to spread me out. There are many families that have been ruined by drug addiction, and we shouldn't look at it as a moral failing of the addict, but as a disease like any other disease. And we certainly must do so now with the opioid crisis in that it was something very greatly foisted upon us by irresponsible pharmaceutical companies and the doctors that prescribed such drugs without knowledge or possibly with knowledge that we're now dealing with an addiction that is not necessarily related to somebody's lifestyle. You know, if you're in the artist scene where drugs are more recreational, this is something that was given to you by a medical professional to deal with processing pain. So I think more than in the past, uh, people have a greater sense of the addictive personality or people with addictions and how it's not necessarily their own fault, you know, that some are higher risk, have been exposed by one method or another, and then have to deal daily with the draw to scratch that itch. An oddly upbeat song for such a um, painful topic. With a song entitled Smog Harp, you'd assume that it would be about the environment, especially from someone so pro-environmental uh, 
protection as Ogre yet. What I think we get with this another short song, about 2 minutes and 42 seconds I believe, it seems to be from the fog of being in a drug-addled state of the mind fading, disappearing way of blocking out one's own consciousness and trying to deal with the pain. There are several references to the past of old memories and how these past traumas or scars shape our current lives and we still struggle with who we were with who we are today and in terms of drug addiction and alcoholism it's very much a cause for those things that these could be learned behaviors or just fall back to our childish state of a return to old habits there's a lot of distortion in the song which i think adds to this state of mind and there's kind of a martial almost funereal beat to it like the playing of taps or something just the kind of snare reminded me of such a thing the final track witness puts a button on the whole thing wraps it up in a bow again we have some references to drug addiction and possibly a reason why there was a relapse that there's some discussion of reaching out to someone on the other side. Could this be the other side of the grave? Perhaps somebody close to Ogre had died, and uh, this sorrow led to a depressive state and a retreat into drug use. And then we account this process of grief into lashing out at any accusers of bargaining with people for help and just coming to terms with the situation and accepting at the end that there's kind of a cruel finality to life that you just go get a job at Walmart, make your money and die. That that seems to be the extent of it for a lot of people. That they don't have this artist's sentiment. They don't have the opportunity to tour the world and play to fans and that sort of thing that for many it's just the same routine of their parents and their children will repeat these small town lives that seem bleak and hollow and there's not much else to it than to be a cog or wheel in the machine to be replaced once no longer found useful. And we get Mosley at the end talking about just this daily life of your average worker and it cuts off suddenly as do lives and it's quite shocking and abrupt and very much orchestrated to be just that is the sudden cutoff of this person's life. They're in the middle of a sentence and then nothing. Just even in looking at the lyrics as they're printed out, there is a hyphen at the end of suck. That even the word isn't finished. And with that, it's the end of the album. I had the good fortune to see this entire album performed live by Ogre in Sandy, which is a city south of Salt Lake City. 
in a small venue. Their opener was the American Memory Project, if I recall, who play kind of an industrial ambient style of music with vintage captured video of uh, American history showing, you know, how the <laughs> Industrial Revolution spread throughout the United States. The album was performed song for song, song by song in its entirety, with Ogre reading the written word material as Bill was not there and they were not just going to play the samples of it. Ogre did it himself. And it was something to witness, just seeing an entire concept album played in its entirety live. With some lighting, I recall there being kind of strange neon-like effects and just video being played over the entire stage. So that even uh, Ogre was painted in lights from whatever video. And as an encore, they of course played some of the hits off Welt and Sunnyside Up. Yeah, it just shows how much of a concept album this is, that you couldn't separate one song from the other live, really. To best listen to Devils in My Details, you pretty much have to go from song 1 to song 11 in order to capture everything. Even listening to it on iTunes, you still get kind of a break between songs. Truly, if you can get the album to be without break of any kind, such as on the original CD, or imagine on vinyl, then you would have just one continuous musical voyage into the inner workings of someone working out their sorrow, self-doubt, addictive tendencies. It's a very personal album, often impenetrable, as it is so tied into Ogre's own thought processes that it's kind of difficult to get inside, and others are exposed like an open wound. There's no doubt in what is being confessed. So I hope you enjoyed this album review. I know I've been meaning to get around to a more uh, traditional goth album review rather than all these industrial ones, but so far it's all been the industrial stuff, really, that I've been reviewing, such as way back in the day, Greater Wrong of the Right and a Tactical Neural Implant by Frontline Assembly, How Rook by KMFDM. So yeah, it was a tall order to review some of these songs, as they are quite dense, but you got my approach to interpretation anyway. And I tried on some of the more dense songs to approach from various angles and look at them from top, bottom, and sideways to kind of get at whatever was at the core of the piece. So with that, I think in the next time we will get around to that movie commentary. Our plan is to talk over the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse film, which has a lot there to be discussed. And Brandy dipped in a little bit looking at some production and so on, so she might have some trivia. And I've learned a little bit through other people's reviews of the film as well, so should be a nice discussion. Not quite the riff fest that we were planning originally, but more of kind of a overall discussion of 
Spider-Man and uh, this new approach to animation. So I'll leave it there and we'll be back in short order with a film commentary for your enjoyment. Thank you and so long. You have been listening to the Dark Corner Podcast with Dr. Brandy Sexy Voice and me, DJ Evil Dave. Special thanks go to Tom Elliott and the Strange and Deadly Show for kindly hosting our podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or just share us with your weird friends. You know the ones. The intro and outro music is Angels of the Dark by Studio X versus Simon Carter. You can find them on the Alpha Matrix record label. The Dark track was offered for free as a promotional song or was submitted directly by the artist or artist's representative and no violation of copyright is intended. You can like our fan page and group on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at DarkCornerCast. Brandy is Brandywine12, Brandy with an I. If you have feedback, you can contact us at thedarkcornerpod at gmail.com. Now get out there and build levels. We are the